I think by now you have probably all figured out that I really like this Bible story, children's book, this children's Bible story book. Been here for eight years, and this continues to be the only book that we use on Sunday mornings for our children's message. And chances are that's going to continue to be the case. And the reason for that is twofold. First, because I love how this uh, storybook Bible shows us how each and every part of the Bible, each and every story in the Bible points us towards Jesus, finds its greatest fulfillment in Jesus, which I think is how the Bible is actually written. The other thing that I really like about this Bible storybook is how it handles the various stories in the Bible. I think it does a fantastic job with two exceptions. The first is the story of Jonah. I think that this book portrays Jonah in too positive a light. If you've been around uh, the church for a while, you might remember a sermon series that we did on the book of Jonah, that I did on the book of Jonah several years ago, a series in which I argued that Jonah is the world's worst prophet, and that the fact that Nineveh was saved was not because of Jonah, but actually in spite of Jonah. But to be fair to this storybook Bible, I've never seen a children's Bible that actually does justice to the last chapter of Jonah, so I can't complain too much. But the other story that I now begin to take some exception to is one that I just discovered pretty recently. It's a story that begins this way. After Moses died, God gave his people a new leader. His name was Joshua which means the Lord saves. Joshua was going to lead God's people into the special land that God had promised to give them. Now, by this time, God's people had been wandering around in that baking desert for 40 years. And so you can imagine how sick they were of sand and anything yellow and tense and walking and just being hot. And how happy they were to reach the edge of the desert and to see their beautiful new home right there in front of them, all cool and green and lovely. There was only one problem. Jericho. Jericho was a city. But it wasn't just any old city. It was a fortress. And it stopped anyone from getting into the land. The people looked at Jericho, at the big, giant, scary walls all around it, at the tall, towering ramparts, at the heavy iron gates bolted shut, at each other. What would they do? No one knew. Here's my problem. I don't think Jericho was nearly as large nor as threatening as that storybook makes it sound. Now Jericho, Jericho is an ancient city, about 10,000 years old. 
And there were times in its history where it was, uh, was surrounded by walls of very great significance. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is how big, or not necessarily how big, Jericho actually was. In ancient times, at its very largest, it occupied an area that was about 10 acres in size. And it's very likely that when Joshua and the Israelites crossed over the Jordan, it was significantly smaller than that. It doesn't sound so scary or threatening as the Bible storybook makes it sound, does it? Now, I do want to be very clear about something. I am not suggesting that the biblical account of Jericho is anything but true. I think what the Bible tells us and everything that the Bible tells us about Jericho is, in fact, trustworthy and true. The problem is that I'm not sure that we always do a real good job in the retelling of that story. I think that more often than not, and perhaps not even intentionally, we tend to embellish elements of the story of Jericho, like the size of the city or the magnitude of its walls. The Bible doesn't, but we do. And there's a problem with this, in that when we do this, we end up risking missing the lesson that we can actually learn from this story. An important lesson that actually has implications for how we follow Jesus today. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're in the midst of a sermon series from the Old Testament book of Joshua, a book that tells us how the Israelites entered in and then claimed the land of Canaan, a book that shows how God kept one of the great promises he made to Abraham, the promise of a great homeland for his descendants, a book that God has designed to still very much speak to us today, living in the 21st century. Last week, we saw that God stopped the flow of the Jordan River so that the Israelites could cross safely into the land of Canaan. In response, the Israelites built a monument, a monument that was designed to remind them of this amazing thing that God had done for them in getting them across the Jordan. But now it was time for them to claim the land. And that would begin with a battle, a battle for the city of Jericho. This morning, we are going to see Joshua dramatically change his battle plan when he meets a mysterious stranger. We're going to learn why Joshua was so willing to change his plans. And we're going to rediscover the important lesson that we can learn from the battle of Jericho. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Jericho chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. I caught it. <laughs> Joshua chapter 5. I'm hoping I don't do that too many times during the sermon because those names are so similar. Yeah, Joshua chapter 5. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, 
take one of those red Bibles in front of you, and we're going to be on page 336 in the red Bible, Joshua chapter 5. Now, the city Jericho, it's located just across the Jordan River. Um, you probably remember that Joshua has already done some recon on the city, on the land around the city. Uh, before they'd ever crossed over the Jordan, Joshua had sent some spies ahead to check things out. Um, it turns out, though, that a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab uh, ends up risking her life to protect these spies because they're found out very quickly after they enter into the city there. Instead of turning them over to the king, Rahab instead helps them escape through the window of her house, which forms part of the city wall. In exchange for this rescue, the spies promise that they will rescue her and her family when they take the city of Jericho, as long as they all gather in her house there in the wall, and they keep a scarlet cord tied to her window, marking her place. Well, the day has now come. They've crossed the river, and the day has now come for Joshua and these Israelites to engage Jericho in battle. And undoubtedly, Joshua has been thinking about this for a while. Maybe he's been meeting with his military leaders, and they have almost certainly developed a plan of attack for this battle. Jericho is a walled city, and so it, it seems likely that their plan of attack must have involved some sort of siege. That's typically how you take down a walled city. This is going to be different than the type of warfare that the Israelites have been involved in in the past. Um, but Joshua, uh, the leader of Israel's fighting men, uh, he certainly was under Moses. Uh, he's a man who's experienced in battle and is experienced in leading others in battle. But then... On the eve of this battle, or at least right before this battle, Joshua encounters a mysterious stranger, a stranger who's dressed for battle. Look at verse 13, Joshua chapter 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? I mean, that's a reasonable question, right? The battle lines are drawn up. The sides are clear. Israel, Israel is there on one side. Jericho, the Canaanites, they are on the other. And Joshua wants to know where this mysterious man stands in this whole matter. Is he with him or is he against him? See, in Joshua's mind, those are the only two options. You're either on my side or you're on my enemy's side. So which is it? Tell me. Well, this mysterious stranger refuses to identify with either side. Instead, he reveals to Joshua who he is and shows Joshua that he's been asking the wrong question. See, Joshua is so focused on taking Jericho that he risks forgetting the most important thing here. Look at the text, verse 14. Neither he, the mysterious man, replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. 
Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Now at this point you are probably asking, you probably should be asking, who is this guy? Who is this mysterious stranger? But if you know your Bible, especially if you know your Old Testament, this should also be triggering something for you. This should be kind of tickling your memory. This should be linking you to another important story in the Bible, a story that involves Moses. This is another one of those stories that links to Moses, kind of a pattern we're seeing in Joshua, isn't it? Well, clearly, this is, some, this is an instance that triggers something for Joshua because he immediately falls face down on the ground before this person who is standing there in front of him. See, this is an encounter that echoes something from earlier in the Bible. This is an encounter that echoes something that happened at the beginning of the book of Exodus. What I'm talking about is Moses' experience at the burning bush. An experience in which Moses found himself face to face with the Lord, with Yahweh himself. And Joshua now finds himself in the same situation And so he falls on his face. See, I think that this is Yahweh himself that has appeared to Joshua. And I think that he is here to remind Joshua that he is not on his side. I think that it's really easy for us to make the same kind of assumptions that Joshua has been making here. The assumption that there are only two sides to a thing. There's our side, and there's their side. And God is, of course, on our side. You know, we do this sometimes in our careers, in our businesses, We expect to be successful and profitable, promoted and protected because we are Christians. And so God is on our side. We can do this in our politics. We feel good when we check the box or pull the lever for our candidate because we're confident that God is on our side. We do it in whatever are the current culture war issues. As Christians, sometimes we feel really righteous about our stances on abortion or CRT, on immigration, on transgender rights, on the Second Amendment, because we are confident that God is on our side. The problem is that this is not how it works. God is not on your side. See, this kind of thinking is backwards. The real question is not, is God on my side? But am I 
on God's side. See, God doesn't side with us. We get to decide if we're going to side with him. That is how things actually work in the world. See, God God isn't up in heaven just looking down on the world, evaluating how things are going, and then deciding which side he's going to be on, and then acting accordingly. Instead, from the very beginning of all things, God has been at work. God has been on mission, implementing his great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for himself through Jesus Christ, a people who will live spirit-filled lives as they pursue the values, methods, and priorities of the kingdom of God. God doesn't decide if he is going to be part of what we are doing. We have to decide if we're going to be part of what he is doing. And that is a decision that begins with us pledging our love and loyalty to Jesus. A choice in which we are making a commitment to side with God in all things. Do you remember how Jesus teaches us to pray? Not my will be done, but your will be done. God isn't on our side. But here's the gospel. You can be on his. So as Joshua faces Jericho, he gets to decide if he will side with God in this battle. On the one hand, he can try and do things his way, hoping that God will bless that effort and side with him in the end. Or he can choose instead to side with God in this battle, follow God's lead. Even if, as it turns out, it doesn't necessarily seem like God's way is going to be the best way to get the results that he's hoping for. Look at the text, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse. And the army will go up, everyone straight in. I want you to notice there that verse 2 clarifies exactly who is the commander of the army of the Lord. It is the Lord himself. See, just as in Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord in the burning bush turns out to be the Lord himself. If you doubt that, just read the text and you see that that's what happens. Anyway, prior to this encounter, back to Joshua, prior to this encounter, Joshua must have had a battle plan for taking Jericho. Again, he's an experienced soldier. He has experience leading men in battle. He knows that God has promised them this land. He knows that Jericho 
is a city, yes, and it's got a wall, but it's not that big. And its wall, it seems, is just made up of houses that have formed a circle around the outside of the city. And so even with this wall, this battle actually shouldn't be that much of a challenge for them. I mean, at the very worst, it's just going to slow them down if it turns into some sort of protracted siege. And so Joshua probably thinks that he's got this figured out. But then the Lord appears to him and says, if you're going to be on my side in this, this is how we're going to do it. Don't attack Jericho directly or surround it or set up siege works against it. All I want you to do is just march around it with your fighting men, with the priests who are carrying the ark, and then with seven additional priests who are blowing ram's horns. I want you to do this, and I want you to only do this, and I want you to do it for six days. And then on the seventh, I want you to do it seven times. And on the last time around, at the sounding of the trumpets, I want you to tell everyone to just yell as loud as they can. You do that, and the walls of this city are going to collapse. And you and your men will be able to just walk into the city and take it without any difficulty or any delay. So Joshua has a choice. Commander of the army of the Lord, Yahweh himself, has already reminded Joshua that he is not on his side. And it's up to Joshua to decide if he's going to instead be on Yahweh's side and do it Yahweh's way, even if this does not necessarily seem like the best way to get the results that he's hoping for. I mean, have you ever heard of the walls of a city collapsing just because a bunch of people walked around it and then started yelling at the walls? You know, I think, like Joshua, we have particular results that we are hoping for. Think about, you know, the success that we hope to have in a business or our desire to secure a promotion. Maybe the election of certain leaders and definitely the the defeat of others. Maybe it's the enactment or removal of policies that address economic or social issues, you know, these things that we feel really strongly about. And we know, we all know that there's a playbook on how to get these things done. If we're trying to get a promotion, you know, the way to do it is just to fudge the numbers a little bit. Take credit for work that other people have done. Cut a few corners to pad your results. Overpromise, even if you know you probably can't deliver, because that's what's going to get you the promotion. Comes to elections, misrepresent your opponents. Attack them personally, rather than address their particular ideas or positions on various issues. When it comes to policy things, Just vilify everyone on the other side of your issue. Wildly overstate what's going to happen if people don't go with you on this issue. 
I mean, that's how we get things done in this world of ours, right? That's what we have to do in order to get the results that we want. But then, of course, Jesus says, on my side, this is how we do things. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We do to others what we want them to do to us. We love our neighbors, yes, but we also love our enemies. And we pray for those who persecute us. And instead of retaliating, we turn the other cheek. We're a people who forgive. Not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times 7, if that's what your translation says. (laughs) A lot. Endlessly. I mean, let's be honest. That does not sound like the way, the best way to get the kind of results that we want. That doesn't seem like the path to success in our world. But see, we got to remember, God isn't on our side. What we have to decide is if we are going to be on his side. And that means doing things his way and according to the values and methods and priorities of the kingdom of God. And trusting that this is truly the best way for us to live. Well, Joshua, in this moment, proves that he is the kind of leader that Israel truly needs. He sets aside whatever other plans he might have had to take the city of Jericho, and instead he instructs the priests and the fighting men to do nothing but march around the city for a week. Look at the text. Uh, We're in chapter 6, now verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. And the people did it. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day that I tell you to shout. And then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. And then the army returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, 
The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. And the armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout! For the Lord, <coughs> for the Lord has given you, I don't think Joshua coughed, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So on day seven, Joshua has given his fighting men three instructions. On the seventh time around, the city, they are to shout. Rahab and her family, they are to be spared. Everything else in the city, both living and inanimate, is to be fully devoted to God. Precious and useful metals are to be put into the treasury. Everything and everyone else is to be destroyed, killed, and or burned. Now, this third and final instruction is, I think, frankly, one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing from the Old Testament for a lot of people to accept. To us, it seems to be unnecessarily brutal, even barbaric. It's led some to actually accuse the God of the Bible of being genocidal. And it's really hard for us to see in it anything, any way in which this is good. How can this kind of instruction come from a God that we say is good? You know, I think that that is a difficult but reasonable question for people to ask, whether they are Christians or not. And I promised previously that this is something that I will address. And even though it first happens, at least in practice here in the city of Jericho, I'm actually not going to address it until next week. Uh, because of the role in which this very thing is going to play in what happens after the Battle of Jericho. But for now, let me say this about this difficult command. This is a command that is about both judgment and justice. This is a command whose application is limited to a very particular situation, particular time, 
and particular location. And even those in the community of Israel are not fully exempt from it, nor is it automatically applied to every single Canaanite. But I promise that we'll talk more about this next week. But right now, what we're going to do is we're going to see what happened with Joshua's decision to choose Yahweh's side in the battle of Jericho. Verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. And so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. And they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. And so the young men who had done the spy, they went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. And they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. And then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron, uh, they put into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. And so it is all played out, not according to Joshua's plan, but according to Yahweh's plan. The armies of Israel marched, but it was Yahweh who took down the walls of the city. Rahab and her family, they're spared, although initially they are held outside of the camp, probably for purity reasons, we do read here that they are fully integrated into the community of God's specially chosen people. Precious metals, precious useful metals, they're put into Yahweh's treasury. Everything else in Jericho is defeated, destroyed, and burned, fully and completely dedicated to God. Verse 26, at that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. And so what God had destroyed in destroying the city of Jericho, it was not supposed to be rebuilt again. But if you know your Old Testament, you know that it was built again. In fact, it still exists today. But Joshua's prophetic warning does prove to be true, and the man who rebuilt Jericho loses both his sons in doing so. See it there in in, uh, 1 Kings 16. As you think about the Battle of Jericho, here is what I really want you to see from this story. What is so special about the battle of Jericho is not that Joshua and the Israelites won. What makes it special is how they won. See, I think winning this battle was probably a foregone conclusion 
Jericho was walled, but it wasn't particularly large, nor particularly well-populated, nor particularly mighty. And so the armies of Israel should have been able to take this city by more conventional means, even if it ended up taking them a while in, in which to do so. But instead, God does something special. He does something surprising. He does something unexpected. He fulfills this promise that he had made, but he does it in a way that no one anticipated. And see, this will not be the last time that God would fulfill his promise in a special, surprising, and unexpected way. Going back all the way to the very beginning, long before Joshua, before Moses, even before Abraham, God made another promise, a promise to rescue humanity, a promise he made to send a rescuer who would defeat not the walled cities of Canaan, but the powers of sin and brokenness and death that threaten and enslave all of us. And my friends, that is a promise that God has kept. That is a battle that God has already won. But see, what makes God's victory over the powers of sin, brokenness, and death so special is not that he won. I mean, that is something that I think we could have anticipated since he wanted to do it. What's so surprising is how he did it. He did it by showing up again. You know, everyone hoped and expected that God would appear again as the commander of the army of the Lord. But instead, he came as a baby born to a virgin in a little unknown town of Bethlehem. In Hebrew, his name was Joshua. But we know him by his Greek name, Jesus. And he came as Messiah, the snake-crushing great rescuer king that God had promised. But see, he didn't end up fighting this battle in any way that anyone expected him to. Instead, this son of Mary, who was also the son of God, he took our defeat on himself so that we get to win. He died so that we get to live. And then, just as surely as the walls of Jericho fell, he rose. He rose from the dead, never to die again. Amen. See, what is so special is not just that he won, but how he won. He did it by becoming one of us. God came to us so that we get to return to him. And not so that he can now be on our side, but so that now, finally, we get to be on his side. Let me pray.